Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time to be in your word, and we do pray that we would hear your words, that we would understand your words, that we would live by your words, that we'd have a higher view of you, a more clear view of you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can turn to Psalm 99. We'll be in Psalm 99 this morning. Perhaps you've read uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. You'll recall, if you have read that, um, that the children enter Narnia, right? They enter this land called Narnia, and while they're there, they hear about Aslan, who is the true king of Narnia. And as you read through the the whole series, you recognize this is the Christ figure in the book. And uh, and they hear about Aslan from these two beavers. Uh, I know, it's a little strange. I mean, beavers don't normally talk, but these these beavers talk. Uh, Such is Narnia. And so the children are curious as to what kind of person this Aslan is. What kind of king is he? They hear that he is the king of of Narnia, and they want to know what kind of king is he. So I'll just read uh, an excerpt from this dialogue. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. So that's one one of the girls. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. May, and make no mistake, said Miss Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then it, he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Well, in Psalm 99, what we have is it's in a cluster of psalms referred to as enthronement psalms. Psalms 93 through 100 are all part of this this grouping of psalms. And so enthronement, what we're talking about is a king, right? That's what we mean when we talk about a king and enthronement, right? They're sitting on the throne. They're, um, They're up on the throne. And so this is talking about, these psalms are talking about the Lord's present reign, as king, because he is king right now, um, it also looks ahead to his future and, and fullness of his reign in terms of our experience of the fullness of it, right? He reigns now, we experience that now, but there's a sense in which uh, every wrong will be placed fully under his feet, right? And righteousness will reign in the clearest uh, form before our eyes. And so the question is, what kind of king is he? Is he powerful and cruel the way many kings are? Is he weak and indulging or passive, as some leaders may be? What kind of king is he? What is his kingdom marked by? Psalm 99 gives us a glimpse into a central reality of God as king and and who he is and what that means for his kingdom. And so I want to read Psalm 99 now, and I want you to see if you can pick up on the main themes. And uh, just a hint, repeated words often are helpful right? So listen for repeated words, listen for things that stand out as a theme, and listen for what kind of king is he? What, what type of kingdom does he have? So let me read Psalm 99. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord, our God. 
Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. So, repeated words, right? That was your, one of your tasks. So, uh, hopefully you picked up on this, right? If not, you may have... Um, distractions around you, and that's okay. But uh, if you're not distracted and you picked up on it, the word you should have picked up on is holy, right? Holy appears several times, um, at least three times referring directly to God. Um, it appears a fourth time referring to a holy mountain. And so holiness, there, there, so that's the main truth. The main truth then is God is holy. That's the kind of king he is. Uh, the main response that's called for is what? You, hopefully you notice this as well. There's some repeated ideas in terms of exalt and worship, right? Uh, so, so there's some synonymous things going on, but the idea of exaltation, of worship, there's this idea of bowing before the king. He is holy, therefore he is worthy of worship and being exalted above all. You see that in verse 2, verse 5, and verse 9, right? He is exalted over all the peoples, verse 2. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Verse 5, exalt the Lord your God. Worship at his footstool. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. So we have something about who God is and about how we are to respond. So that, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what this psalm is about, okay? We're going to unpack it over the rest of our time together. But if you don't get anything else, at least you, you know what the main point is, right? If you walk away, holy, God is holy, right? Take that with you. The Bible is clear that God reigns from beginning to end. I mean, you see that in the storyline. He creates everything, right? I mean, he is there before anything else exists, and he creates. He speaks, and it comes into existence. Uh, and here we see it expressed in poetry. And what we see specifically about his holiness is that he is terrifyingly great and that he is amazingly just, right? He is just, and he is great. And, um, and he also relates to his people, and he, he doesn't compromise his justice and his holiness when he does that. That's another thing we see in this psalm. So when we think about it, again, the question is, God reigns, well, what kind of king is he? And our foundational answer is he is holy, holy, holy. He is um, not safe, and we're going to see what, the, what I mean by that in a second. He is not safe, but he is good. So our outline for this morning then is we're going to look at verses, we're going to take verses one through five together. Um, we, we really could break this down into three parts based on where holy, holy, is, holy is his name, um, but I think it, it, maybe it's a little bit simpler for us to think about it this way. Verses one through five, we can take all that together, even though there are two parts in there, we can take all that together and say, God reigns in holiness. That's what we're going we're gonna to see established in verses 1 through 5. God reigns in holiness. And then in verses 6 through 9, we're going to see that God relates to us in holiness. God relates to us in holiness. Well, before we jump into the psalm, we probably need to think a little bit about the word holiness, since that is the main word in this psalm. We need to think a little bit about what that means. Uh, we don't want to have different views going on, so I'm saying holy and you're thinking something else. So let's think about this for a second. You know, what comes to mind when you think of holy? Perhaps it is something about purity, right? That God is, is pure. He is undefiled. You think of like a, a, a nice white sheet of paper or a white shirt and there is no stain on it. It is holy. It is pure, right? Uh, pure water, 
right? You think of that, and you could think of that being a picture of holiness, perhaps. And that is true. That is certainly part of the idea. Um, however, that is really uh, flowing from a more foundational understanding. The, the foundation of holiness, the foundational meaning of it is to be set apart. So to say that God is holy is to say that He is apart from all else. He is separate from all else. He is above all else. Um, he, he is transcendent above everything else. Um, tied in with that being set apart, um, you know, you might say, well, what is he set apart to, right? I mean, that's kind of a, that's a legitimate question to ask when we talk about holiness. So he's set apart. What is he set apart to? Well, he's set apart to and for his own perfect character and will. To say that God is holy means that he is set apart for his glory. He is, he is high and lifted up and above all for his, the purpose of his own character and will. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, He says, when the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, that means His his magnificence, to the sense in which God is higher and superior to anything there is in the creaturely realm. So, you know, one illustration is the word holiday, right? Holiday uh, is really holy day. That's, That's the original it comes down to us, so now we have holiday, right? But it's holy day. So what is a, ho- what is a holy day? What is a holiday? It is, it is a day that is set apart, right? There's something very unique about the day. Perhaps, perhaps it's, you know, um, um, Good Friday or, you know, uh, Resurrection Sunday. Um, th- those would be proper holidays, right? Um, something set apart in its own special category. Well, God is set apart from everything else and so, I mean, that's a very weak analogy because, I mean, God is, is he's not like these other days, right? But you get the point. There is something very unique and special about God. He is set apart. And yes, that includes moral perfection and purity, right? He is set apart to his own character. He is holy and pure. That's true. Completely pure. Um, it's important to note that in the Bible, this is the only thing that is referred to in a threefold manner about God. And the point is that there's an emphasis going on here. That is, that, is, that is like the pinnacle of emphasis is to say it three times in a row in the Bible. So we saw that in Isaiah 6, right? We read from Isaiah 6 earlier. And you saw it said, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? He is holy. Revelation 4.8 refers to him as the king who is worthy to receive all glory and honor because he made everything. And those angels are saying, holy, holy, holy. Again, set apart, set apart, set apart. He's a creator of everything, the ruler of everything. Therefore, he is set apart above everything. Psalm 99, to some degree, does this too. I mean, it's not back to back, but you see that he is holy as he, verse 3. Verse 5, holy as he, verse 9. The Lord our God is holy. So in some ways, you see it there as well. The Bible doesn't say this in, in the same way about anything else. It doesn't say merciful, merciful, merciful. Uh, it is not to say, though, that God is not merciful. He is. I think part of what the focus is here is that in all that God is, He is holy. His mercy, it is a holy mercy. It is set apart. It is completely above everything else. It is completely pure. He is omniscient. Yes, He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. Yes, He's omnipresent. He's loving. Yes, He's loving. But He is holy in His love, holy in His omniscience. He's holy in all these categories that we might think of. So every attribute is marked by God's holiness, by the fact that He is wholly devoted to his character, to his will. He is set apart in a category completely to himself. So that means, um, that's what it means for God to be holy. What does it mean for people to be holy? I think this is it's a little tangential, but it's still important to think about that. Uh, in the Bible, you know, it talks about sanctification. That's from the same root word as holy. Uh, it talks about saints, 
right? That, those are not, that's, that's not like just some special group. It's Christians. Christians are referred to as saints. Same word for holy. They're the holy ones. So what does it mean? Well, it means to be set apart to God, right? You, you re- so God is the, the best, biggest, greatest person above all. And so we are set apart not to ourselves, but to God for his purposes, for his glory, for his character to be put on display. A person's life and loyalty is seen as fully and wholly belonging to God. That's what we mean when we talk about holiness. So does it include purity and stuff like that? Sure, it does. Yes, that's part of what it means to be set apart to God. But it's bigger than that. It is bigger than that. And, uh, you know, we live in an age where this does not make sense to many. Because why? We, we are fully and wholly devoted to ourselves, aren't we? The self is what we are devoted to. Self-expression is what we are devoted to. Now, do you, do you exist as a person that God made? Yes, you do, right? You're unique and you're, you are, there's something unique about you, true. But you are set apart to God, not to yourself, right? If, if everything collapses down to you and your kingdom, that's a very small kingdom. It's a very weak kingdom. It is not worthy of the name kingdom, and yet we do it all the time. God is holy, and He alone is worthy of our worship. He is the one we are set apart to. That's what it means to be holy as a person. He, for, I mean, because otherwise, He's seen as a rival king. He's not, he's not the great king above all else. In other words, holy. He's just a rival king. But that is not the way we should view Him. No, the Bible calls us out of our tiny world to see that God is holy. Instead of living for yourself, by the way, if you live for yourself, all you get is you. You get the smallest kingdom possible. Right? But, it, but if you are set apart to God, you get God in the end. Right? He is your king. So, that's what it means to be holy. Well, now let's look at Psalm 99. And as we do, we're going to see the awe-inspiring, fear-inducing beauty of God's holiness as king. That he reigns in holiness. That he is not safe. And we're also going to see that we can walk with him as our holy God. We can have him as our holy God. That he is good and relates to us in holiness. So, verses 1 through 5, our first section, God reigns in holiness. And we're going to see two things in this section. So, two kind of subpoints. If you're taking notes, maybe that helps you. There's two subpoints here. Verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that uh, in holiness as king, he is awe-inspiring. So, so he is a great and awe-inspiring king. That's what we're going to see in those first verses. It really, it focuses on his person, what is his person like? He is an awe-inspiring, great king. Section, section, second section, verses 4 through 5, um, God acts in holy justice is what we're going to see there. So again, this is all about his kingdom. What's, you know, what's he like? Well, he is great. He is exalted above all. What's his reign like in terms of the way he acts? So this is his person. Now, what's he, what is his person? How does he act? He acts in holy justice. That's what we're going to see. That's, that's going to characterize his kingdom. So let's look at these. First point, he reigns in terrifying greatness. Look at verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So in verse 1, we see the fact of his great reign. Um, And this is a reality that he reigns, and it is a statement of faith, right? Just like in our day, there are many people in the psalmist day and now in our day who say, well, he doesn't reign. Look around you. But the psalmist is making a statement of faith here. He does reign. God reigns and sits on the throne. 
the Lord reigns is parallel to the second statement there. You'll see where it says, sits enthroned upon the cherubim. You see how those two lines are parallel? So this is a similar idea. It's a reference to God's throne when it talks about sitting enthroned upon the cherubim. Specifically, in Old Testament Israel, this would refer to the Ark of the Covenant. Right? In the Ark of the Covenant, we have the top piece having two cherubim over the mercy seat. You recall that the Ark of the Covenant is this box right, where God made a covenant, a promise, and, and he's saying, look, I am your king, and I am your God, and I am your rescuer, and here is the relationship I have with you. These are the promises. These are the commands. He gives them this, and they put it in this ark, right, this box, and then this, is, this box is representative of God's rule. I mean, think about it. It has his laws in it. It has his words in it. It's representative of his rule over them and his rescue as well. And so, um, so it's a visible reminder of God's rule over them, but it really wasn't visible to very many people, was it? I mean, think about it. Where was the ark kept? It was kept in the Holy of Holies, right? The holiest of holies, the most set-apart place to God. And so we see it set apart away, and only once a year could the high priest go in there to offer blood sprinkled over the top on the mercy seat saying, here's the law, we haven't kept it, we need sacrifice in between us and your law, God, please forgive us. And so, only the high priest could go in there once a year, so it's not even something people could go to every year, or the, the people could go to, only the high priest could go to it. And on top of that ark are these golden cherubim, these angelic creatures. And by the way, the, these are not like the little cupids with their little rinky-dinky bow, like, you know, this little like weak-looking bow. I mean, we're talking uh, angels of war. We're talking serious angels here. I mean, think about it. when you read through the Bible, every time someone encounters an angel, they like, and they know it, they're like falling down as though dead, essentially, right? Um, we tend to think of them like these like sweet little plump babies flying. That's not what we're talking about. So the, these angels are, are on top of it, um, and we see them throughout the Bible. Genesis 3, the cherubs appear, and uh, Adam and Eve have been kicked out of the garden, and they have flaming swords, these cherubs, to guard the entrance to God's um, temple, so to speak, right? The garden temple. They can't come in there because now they have sinned. They, they have not been wholly devoted to God and his holiness and his, we're going to see later, his justice, you are now separated from me. And these cherub block that. They guard the throne, throne room, so to speak, right? Um, we, we see it here. Um, we see it in Ezekiel. The throne, Ezekiel has a vision of the throne of God. And, and what do we see below this throne? We see cherubim, right? Um. So, so in some way, what we're seeing is they are keepers of the throne room of God. They are guardians of God's holiness. Uh, the mention of, of this cherubim here remind us of two realities. One is that he is transcendent, right? He, he is above all. Uh, he is the type of king that has these cherubim for his court officers. Um, and as sinners, because he's transcendent and you're sinful, he's holy and you're not, you can't just walk in willy-nilly, right? It's just not going to happen. But it also reminds us that he is near. He's not just transcendent. He's also near in his holiness because the fact that we have this ark that the high priest could go into so that God would still remain among his people is incredible testimony to his nearness, that he was there with his people in spite of their sin because he made a way to deal with it. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute. So, to have this holy God near is terrifying, and that's what we see in the next part of verse 1. The fact that God sits enthroned on the throne of heaven 
is enough to make all peoples tremble and, and, and quake. You see that in verse 1. Uh, Isaiah 6, think about that. We, we read that in our scripture reading. We're reminded of this. Isaiah 6, 3, and 4. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. So everything is trembling before the throne of God. Even the, 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 the foundations are trembling. The ground is quaking. I mean, so, so, so the idea here is to be in the presence of God is like to be in a 8.0 earthquake constantly, right? There's just a shaking, trembling, even of the physical elements of the world, let alone human beings and people who would stand before him. And in fact, we even, we even um, see something of that in the way that he responds, right? We, we see the way that he responds is going to be one of recognizing uh, Isaiah I'm talking about, see how he responds to God's holiness. But think about it. Think about what it will be like to be in this transcendent God's presence, even apart from sin. So let's not even think about the fact that we're unworthy to go before him because of sin. Let's just think about his transcendent greatness. This king, this God, made the galaxy from nothing with his words, right? He just spoke it into existence. There are at least 100 billion stars, huge balls of essentially nuclear explosions just in our um, galaxy, not let alone the universe. The universe is over 93 billion light years uh, across, we think. Could be bigger, I don't know. Um, and, and the scripture pictures God as marking it off like this. This is the God we're talking about transcendently great. He is great. Think about what it would be like to stand before this God's throne. Um, and we ought to think about that. I mean, the whole earth is his footstool. We're going to see that later. The whole earth is his footstool. So we are standing before him now, but again, we don't maybe see the fullness of that. But think about what it would be like to stand before this holy God. You would tremble, right? If you stand before this king without your knees knocking, you're either silly or you don't understand what's going on, Right? Now, add the fact that we're sinful. We are rebellious. We have said, um, uh, you're not, I'm not set apart to you. I'm set apart to me. You're not king. I'm king. Now, what is it like to stand before him? We, we've, I mean, already there was trembling, right? Now there is, as Isaiah said, when he was confronted with this view, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts right? To see the king and to be a sinner is devastating. It is devastatingly terrifying to see this king. Not, not because he's a terrible God, because he's holy, right? That's the issue. Verse 2 continues on the theme of his greatness. The, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all peoples. So he's great. He's the greatest in authority, power, dominion. And he's ruling over, it's, it's like it talks about uh, Zion. That would refer to Jerusalem, the capital city of God's place, right? Where, where the temple was, where God's special presence dwelt among his people. Um, as the biblical storyline goes on, it's clear that Zion is, is uh, also going to refer to the heavenly city, the, the throne. I mean, Hebrews 12, says, we come to a heavenly Zion. So there's, there's something even bigger here that the earthly Zion was a foreshadow of. He's exalted over all the peoples. We see that in verse 2. He is objectively, because of his position, objectively above all, exalted above all. We're not talking these people are, are, are realizing that and bowing before him. It does not matter. 
He is objectively, because he is holy, above all as king, sitting on his throne. That is who he is. And, uh, and, and verse 3 calls everyone now to subjectively worship him. Because he is above all, come and worship him. That is the right response. You see that in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Awesome is the idea of you know, awe-inspiring. In other words, knee-knocking, trembling, falling-to-the-ground response. Right? We use it like, you know, well, hey, that was an awesome catch that guy made or whatever. Uh, and I, I mean, that's, I, I get it. That's, language changes. But my point is here, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking knee-knocking, awe-inspiring greatness is who God is. And, and so, um, so, so there's this standing before him, and subjectively we ought to praise his name because holy is he. His name refers to his greatness, who he is, his character. He is exalted whether these people recognize it or not, whether we choose to recognize it or not. Uh, here's an illustration of this. Think, think about the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. It's pretty amazing, right? Um, it is, um, I looked this up because I was thinking, well, maybe it's the grandest canyon in the world, but apparently it's not. So I guess that's, you know, typical Americans. We always think, oh, we got the best. Well, here we don't. So, um, but it is, I mean, in terms of in America, it, it's huge. And just, I mean, worldwide, it's huge, right? Um, if you've ever been there, you, you, you would be awe-inspired to stand before it. Now, suppose someone um, refuses to praise the greatness of the Grand Canyon. Pfft, that little thing, I can't even see it from here in Tallahassee. Does that make the Grand Canyon less objectively grand and great? Absolutely not, right? It says more about them than it does about the canyon, right? Perhaps you haven't seen the canyon. Perhaps that's what the issue is. Perhaps you've seen it and you're just a fool, right? I don't know. But it says more about you than it does about the canyon. And so we see the same thing with God. We, we ought to, we are called to subjectively in our lives acknowledge his greatness. Whether we do or not does not change his greatness. He is holy. You cannot get rid of that. Which is actually a really good thing. We're going to see that soon here. So in verses 1 through 3, we see God is reigning in an awe-inspiring holiness. He is like a lion, regal and beautiful and powerful. And we want to look at the lion, but we also want glass between us and that lion. Right? We recognize that he is not, um, he's not safe in one sense, especially because we're sinful. That's really our main issue. Um, this awe-inspiring greatness was tasted by the disciples. You see that uh, when Jesus calms the storm. And, uh, and, and how do they respond? I mean, there's this raging storm, right? And they're trembling and fearful over this storm, which, I mean, I would be too, right? And, and these are seasoned fishermen. And then Jesus, they, they have to wake him up because he's just sleeping through it. Uh, and what does he do? He speaks. He says, peace be still, and what happens? Essentially, the hurricane just dissipates. And how do they respond? They're not like, that was a close one. Thanks. I mean, I didn't know if we were going to get out of there, but man, you pulled it off. High five. Is that, is that how they respond? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the type of king we're talking about. He is holy. He is set apart. He is great. Well, the second subpoint under the idea that God reigns in holiness is that he reigns in mighty justice. Uh, we see that the type of rule that this person ex uh, exerts, so we've seen something about his person. He is holy. The, the, the type of rule that he exerts is one of justice. That is, his holy reign is marked by justice. Look at the next uh, verses here, four and five. The king in his might loves justice. 
You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. You've heard that might makes right. You've heard that before, right? You can think of an um, authoritarian type leader, an autocratic leader who's just, uh, their selfish inclinations become the law of the land. That's what we mean when we say that. God's rule is not like that. God's rule is not unjust. It is not evil. His rule is an exercise in his love for justice. He loves justice. That's the type of rule he has. Um, We find that he is absolutely mighty and he is absolutely righteous. Absolute right and absolute might together. That is who, what God's reign is characterized by. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, the scepter which he sways, so his kingly power, is holy like himself. Right? His power is holy, just like everything else about him. His love is holy. His mercy, mercy is holy. Second part of verse 4 tells us that since he loves justice, and since he establishes equity, um, that we should come to him and recognize that this is a really good thing. Uh, look, look at when it talks about equity. Let me talk about that first for a second here. Equity. Um, equity means that no person is going to be treated differently before his judicial bar, right? No one's going to be treated differently because they were wealthy or poor, because they were uh, from this social class or that social class, because they were from this country or that country, because they had this skin color or that skin color. That He has equity before him. There is a genuine right type of equal treatment before him, Right? Um, He establishes this type of equity. Um, Spurgeon says it well again. He says, The highest are not high to him, yet blessed be his name. The lowliest are not despised by him. This is is God putting into place equity. Right? No one's going to come to him and be like, Don't you know who I am? Right? I I was, this this is how great I was. Don't you know? Right? The highest are not high to him, and and the lowliest are not forgotten by him. He is equitable in his reign. He executes justice. And what is justice? Justice is to give proper due. What a person is entitled to is given to them. Justice. That's what we mean. So whatever is properly owed to somebody. So think about it. It's just for you to pay a bill that has rightly been billed to your account. Right? That would be a just thing for you to do. Um, it is just for there to be legal punishment when there is a true crime that has been committed. Right? Justice is connected to righteousness uh, because justice requires a standard, does it not? Right? If you, don't, if you don't have a standard of what each person's due would be, you can't execute justice. So there has to be a right, righteous standard. God is the standard of righteousness. So I, you know, I, I hope you'll realize that true equity and true justice only finds a stable foundation in God's reign and rule. It only finds a stable foundation there. And I get that from where it says he establishes it. He sets it up. He makes it this way. Without God, there is no true and stable foundation for justice. Um, I I can remember um, seeing different statements um, about the importance of how every every person is created equal, almost appealing to the fact that we're created see this on, on government things and other things like that. Um, and, and, and hey, I mean, an echo of truth, I can be glad for that. But you know the issue becomes, there's also at the same time that you'll have people in government or other places wanting to say something about equality and equity and justice, on the flip side of it, there's this, this vehement opposition to anything that smacks of God 
coming into the public sphere. Don't talk about God here. We make laws here. We don't talk about God. We talk about justice here. We don't talk about God. It does not work that way. You, can't, you have to have a foundation for justice. You have to have a sense of right if you're going to have justice. And the problem is, when, when we're commuted to, committed to secular humanism, man is the measure of all things, what's the standard? Is it me? Is it you? What if we disagree? Right? We, we're going to have a problem here. Is it only the natural... We, we're committed to naturalism and, and just physical things. Well, we're just kind of enhanced biological computers. Where are you going to find justice in all that? Right? The problem is that justice and equity objectively do not exist without God. What, uh, um, what foundation can we have for claiming things like equal treatment? We have nothing apart from God. Darwinian evolution isn't going to give it to you. Might makes right. That's what Darwin would say. Right? Everything is just survival of the fittest. Might makes right. There's no, there, there is no might and right together. There's a genuine rightness. We only get that with God. Not only do we, do we um, oh, by the way, and, and consensus, that's the other way. I mean, maybe group consensus. Maybe we can get justice that way. Well, uh, historically, that has not gone very well. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are more of us on this side, so we must be right. That tends to lead to oppression as far as, I mean, if you just track it down through history, right? So we only get a foundation for justice and equity if there is a holy God who exists and establishes it. He is the standard. He is holy. He is the one that everyone is accountable to. Uh, an illustration, uh, just thinking about kind of the points I'm making right now, is in a foster parent training thing, I remember them asking once, um, you know, you have this, let's say you have this foster kid, you're, you're taking care of him, he comes home from school, and uh, he's been using racist slurs at school. You know, wh- how would you handle that? That was kind, of, it was kind of just an exercise, and it's a good exercise to go through, right? Because um, that could happen. So, so how are you going to handle that? Um, well, listen, if you don't start with, uh, because there is a holy God, and he made everyone, where are you going to get a standard for rightness from? In other words, if you're going to take God out of the picture, you can't say, well, I mean, God made us all in his image. Right? That's the Christian worldview. Don't steal my worldview and put it in for your answer when it's convenient and then push it out when you don't like it. The only thing you could say is stuff like, well, I don't like it. I don't like that. Don't do that. I do like it. I'm going to keep doing it. Right? I mean, that, you don't have a foundation for justice. Uh, it isn't very nice. Okay. I don't really, who said nice is the right way to go? Um, you won't make many friends that way. It's fine, I don't need many friends. You see what, you, everything is just a pragmatic statement. It's just, it's just pragmatism. Well, this, this, this works better than that. Well, until it doesn't, right? Justice has to have a stable foundation that we only find in the reign of God. The reality is that God's reign establishes justice. And so he calls us to humbly worship before in verse 5, Right? Um, just like the end of the earlier section here, we're called to worship at his footstool. Again, referring to the Ark of the Covenant, um, the fact that, uh, and bigger than that, Isaiah 66 tells us the whole earth is his footstool. So, so there's this connection that we get here. Again, he's saying, look, um, because he, he is holy and he's holy in justice, come and worship him. What is the connection between worship and justice? I mean, that's a connection that's made here, Right? Because he is, not, not just because he's exalted above all, that was one reason to come worship him. Now the second reason is he's just in his righteousness. 
or his holiness. What's the connection? What is the connection between worship and justice? Well, what is it to give God his proper due? The holy God of the universe, his proper due is worship, right? That's what every creature owes to God. We owe worship. So thus, failing to, to worship God is the ultimate injustice that every single person engages in. Take it one step further, our failure to worship God is also the foundation from which all horizontal injustices flow. Injustice between people flows from our injustice towards God. That is the connection between worship and justice here as well. I think it's a kind of a secondary application, but it's there. Romans 1 makes that clear. Uh, we exchange God, worship the creation, and what happens? All sorts of injustice comes out. All sorts of evil. This explains why people are so unjust in every time and every culture. Everywhere. Everywhere. There's not one group of people that, that has like a corner on the injustice market. I mean, granted, thankfully, there are times where there's more grievous injustice. I get that. That's true. And we, we, it's right to acknowledge that. But every person is unjust. Thaddeus Williams, I think, gives a helpful example of this just to really kind of bring this to light. Um, there were two forms of injustice that he points out. I mean, there were more than that, but he points out two in the 1500s in South America. The Aztecs had built huge shrines to the sun and the water. At these shrines, they sacrificed at least 60,000 children, and they also ripped out the hearts of many live people in sacrifice to their gods. You want to talk about injustice? That's not just. At this time, the Spanish conquistadors come, and what are they looking for? Gold and treasure. And by force, they take over the Aztecs. They declare everything belongs now to the Spanish rulers and all the property and all the people, and there is theft and there is oppression and there is abuse and there is rape going on then. Major injustice, right? So what's the explanation? Both of them are engaging in serious injustice. What's the explanation? Was it their culture? I mean, that might affect the way they express their injustice, right? Maybe. Was it their upbringing? No, the Bible says each one failing to worship God is the source of that. And, and you see it in stark contrast right there, right? You, you have the, these, the Aztecs are worshiping gods of the sun and the water created things, and so they murder. The conquistadors have made gods out of gold and wealth, and so they oppress and they murder. Thaddeus Williams says it this way, idolatry, that is not worshiping the true God then, is the first injustice and the carcinogenic source of every other injustice. In other words, idolatry towards God is the cancer that results in all the other lumps of cancer that start spreading throughout society. So, there's a connection between worship and injustice. The main focus here is on the fact that God is just, therefore we ought to worship him. But I hope you see there are implications for our, the horizontal relationships we have too. So this is great news and terrible news. God is exalted. God is just. That is great news. What would it be like if God was not just, if there was no standard of righteousness? Right? That would be terrible. Um, he is above all attempts to pervert or sidestep justice. No one will get off on a technicality. No one who is innocent will be unjustly condemned. That's good news. Right? But his justice is based on a righteous standard, and none of us have measured up to him because we've all worshipped the creation rather than the creator. This is terrible news to think that God is just and holy. 
So that brings us to the last section. How can this God, how can this God be among us, walk with us, and not devour us, right? Uh, does he neglect his holiness so that he can love us? No, the good news is that he establishes a way that he can relate to us in holiness. Look at verses 6 through 9. Here we see that uh, the holy God relates to his people. And we're going to see three things here. Uh, verse 6, his relation to us is one of answering when we call. Speaking, verse 7, speaking his truth to us. And then verse 8, forgiving and avenging our wrongs. So let's look at the way he relates to us in holiness. This is our second major point. God relates to us in holiness. Verse 6, he answers when we call upon him. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. So we have Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. These were leaders in the Old Testament of God's people. And uh, they, they served to represent God's holy rule over his people. And um, they called upon his name, which means they prayed. They called out to God. And uh, we can see many examples of that. I mean, Moses has examples of that, uh, interceding for the people. Uh, but what's amazing is that it says they were among those who called upon his name. And I, I think that that's helpful because, yes, they were unique in their leadership, but they are, um, they're not unique in the sense that we can call out to God too. Uh, Derek Kidner puts it this way in his commentary. He says, By naming these great men as among the men of prayer, it refuses to place them in a class apart. We can be in their company. In other words, we can call out to God in prayer too. Now, when, when we call out to a, ho a holy God, um, well, first of all, back up for a second. It's not just that we call out to him. It's that he answered. You see that there too, right? He answered them. I mean, that's more incredible. Not just the fact that we can call out to him, but that he answers. And so we see that. We'd have good reason to think he wouldn't answer us, given his holy status. But he does. And, uh, and this happens when we call upon his name. So, you know, when you're going to call upon the holy God, you're calling upon his name. This is not some, like, bratty child pitching a, a temper tantrum as if, like, we deserve better, right? God, you owe me. That's not the type of calling out we're doing when we cry upon, call out upon his name. He is holy, He's not going to sacrifice that, and yet we can call out to him as long as we're calling upon his name. We're recognizing his character, that yes, you are holy God. You are righteous when we come to him. Verse 7, we see that he speaks to us, and we see that um, just like we had to call out upon his name, we have to keep his word. That's our responsibility. When he speaks to us, we need to keep his word. Look at verse 7. In the pillar of cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. So the pillar of cloud referred to his special guiding presence in the Old Testament. We can see multiple places where that happens in the Old Testament. He speaks to them. He gives them his testimonies and his statutes, um, talks about who he is, uh, tells them what is expected of them. And so, so this is amazing that the holy God, high and lifted up above all, in his justice would speak to this lowly people, and, by the way, sinful people. But he does. And so what do they do in response? Well, they keep his testimonies. They cling to what he says. In our day, we have people running after their own opinion all the time. We ought to run after God's words. What about you? Do you live under the holy God? Do you, do you live in this way that clings to his word? Um, we might claim to, but the test becomes in our thoughts and our responses to his revelation. What happens when his revelation rubs up against you in a way that you don't like? Do you explain it away? Do you ignore it? 
Do you toss it out, or do you submit to God's holy words? The holy God speaks to his people. That should amaze us, and it should drive us to keep his word. So, God speaks to us in holiness. He answers our prayers, but what about our sin? He forgives wrongdoings. He avenges wrongdoings. Look at verse 8. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So, the fact that God is holy and we have rebelled is a huge problem for us, right? So, how is God going to relate to us? Um, How how is a holy God going to relate to us without wiping us out or not being holy? How is that going to work? And this is the way that he does not compromise his holy greatness, he does not compromise his holy justice, and yet he can walk with us in holiness. Number one, by forgiving us. That is to lift away, to bear away our guilt, to carry it off, right? To take it and carry it off. Like we see in Leviticus 16 with the sacrifice. They, they, they lay the guilt on the goat and it is carried away. The guilt is carried away. That's a picture of what God does. Um, and it's only those who call out in sorrow to be forgiven. That is, that is clearly implied in verse 8. It says, O oh Lord our God, you answered them. And then it talks about forgiving. What does that mean? They were calling out for forgiveness. This isn't just like blanket amnesty or something, right? There's a calling out for forgiveness that God meets with actual forgiveness. But how can God forgive and be just? Well, he's an avenger of their wrongdoings. His forgiveness does not remove the need for justice. God is holy in his justice. He will judge. He's going to avenge it. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, we, we have a good picture of this kind of issue, this um, rubbing together that we're seeing here of, of forgiveness and um, uh, justice. At the end of that, after God's revealed something about himself, he says that he is a God who is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So he's forgiving, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He's not going to ignore it. Now, the question is, How does that happen? Well, in the Old Testament, you have a lot of pictures of what's going to happen. The fullness comes when Christ comes. Psalm 99 even hinted at this when it talks about, you, God, forgave them. In other words, literally, you bore away their sin. God literally does that in the person and work of Christ. Jesus comes and bears our sin on him so that God can punish our sin, be just in executing justice and righteousness, and still forgive us of our sin. His holy standard is met in that way. So this is true of those who recognize their God's holiness and their sinfulness. They see their guilt. They see that they need a Savior. What about you? I mean, are you hoping for a plea bargain? Are you hoping that you can hide from God? No amount of good works is going to do it. There is no way to overcome it on your own. You must flee to Christ. You must flee to Christ. He alone is the way that God can be both forgiving and judging. Otherwise, God will still judge. He will still be holy, but there will be no forgiveness for you. Um, I think most of us would say, agree with the statement that nobody is perfect. I bet if we surveyed people in America, we probably probably would get 95% agreement on that. No, nobody's perfect, right? The issue is no one cares about it because they think it's not a big deal. They think by perfect, what you mean is, well, we all have kind of some blemishes. They're not thinking there is a God sitting on the throne who made the universe and everything in it and who loves justice, and I'm going to stand before him one day, 
and I have not met his righteous standard. So we don't care when we hear that, that nobody's perfect. We think, we think, sure, I can affirm that. Nobody's perfect. We just don't care. I plead with you that you would care about that today for your own soul. Christ has made a way that you can be righteous. And if this gulf between you and God is to be, to be met, to be bridged, it has to come from the far side of the gulf, the far side of the chasm. God has to build that bridge. You cannot. Your good works will not build that bridge. Right? You're, you are, you're a terrible engineer of righteousness. Your bridge is going to collapse. You're not going to make it. God has to build that bridge, and he did in the person and work of Christ so that he can both avenge and hold up his, his holy justice, which, by the way, you want, because if he's not just, there is no meaning, there is no purpose. Might makes right. All the evil things that have happened, there will never be a day of reckoning for those things. The issue is you need to be made right with God. So the good news is Jesus has come to die and rise from the dead to redeem us. So trust in him. God is holy, 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 and he is holy in his forgiveness and his love. Embrace Christ. So we've seen that the holy God relates to us without sacrificing his holiness. That brings us to the conclusion in verse 9 where we, we see this repeated idea that God is holy. We've seen that, that, that two other times. We see it a third time, but there's a small difference. So see if you can pick up on it. Psalm 99, verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Yes, we're still called to exalt him. The reason is still that he is holy. Those parts of the statement are the same. You see the difference? Our God. There is a warmth, a personal connection here that happens. Our God is holy. So in his, yes, his terrifying, exalted status is undiminished. His holy justice is untarnished. And he is unashamed to be called our God if we're in Christ, if we are right with him. God is holy, 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 yet he is near to his people, responding and communicating and forgiving them. And by the way, this does not make us less, it does not make him less holy to do that. We've seen how that works, but it should make us more holy, more set apart to him in the way we live. It should fill us with wonder and worship. And like, I, like we said earlier, if our foundational issue in terms of all the sin we commit is a lack of worship, that's the greatest injustice that you can see why this is the way we, we deal with even our day-to-day -day lack of holiness, right? If God relates to me this way, and I can worship him, I'm growing in holiness. That's how, that's how you get, how, how do you deal with your sin? You worship your way out of it, right? God is the holy king. He is awesome in his position. He is the source of final justice, and yet he relates to us so that we can call upon his name, we can keep his word and we can take sin seriously the way he does. That's the type of holy God we have. He is not tame. You cannot treat him lightly, but he is good. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are holy. Our knees tremble as we think of your holiness. God, we pray that that would happen more often. God, we so often just live by sight, but God, even those sight should remind us that you are holy when we see this massive universe, when we see the trees and we hear the birds, when we see our bodies that are fearfully and wonderfully made, when we see evil around us and find ourselves horrified by it. 
When we see evil in our own hearts and are horrified by it, God, all these things should point us to your holiness. They should drive us to Christ. Would you do that in our hearts, not just this morning, but every day? We pray that we would worship before your holy footstool. In Jesus' name, amen.